I'm Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. In this series, we discover the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on this episode, a story about the world's most valuable spice, and it isn't saffron. Just a hint, it's love. But first, let me introduce to you the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Scott Dodson. Thank you, Todd. You make me blush. Of course, this is just a radio blush. I blush just the same. So I wanted to talk about love and saffron rice and how they're kind of part of the ingredients of some interesting things that occurred in a little town in the south of France called Antibes. Now, for you folks that don't know about Antibes, Antibes is... is pretty much the yachting capital of the world it is home to a giant charter boat fleet it's the largest marina in the mediterranean and it has a great great history and the history really starts after world war ii and Tebe had been there for for Roman times, Greek times, Greek times, and then Roman times, um, they used to make iron there and used to bring it down from the mines. They had forges actually there. Uh, we know Antibes today because of the Grimaldi Castle that is there. We call it a castle. He just called it a residence. It was sort of like, you know, Mar-a-Lago on steroids. So Antibes is this very sort of unique old town, beautiful flowers, um, somewhat isolated from land traffic, I would say, but not from the sea. So there's a lot of yachts, and all the yachts have support services and industries that have developed around the needs for those yachts. But I want to go back to kind of what Antibes was and what it's kind of turned out to be. After World War II, or I should say just during World War II when the invasion of France took place, the British Army, actually in, in, to fight Hitler, landed on Jean Le Pen, which is the town right next to it. It had a nice beach so they could land their landing craft on it. And they took it over. Basically, the Germans sort of left the place and they were gone. And so the war went on. It was occupied by the British throughout the war. And then when the war was over, most of the British left. But some guys stayed, especially guys that uh, had fought they suffered from PTSD, as we know PTSD today. Back then it was called shell shock. And they just didn't have any desire to go back to rainy old England and start their life. They wanted to stay in the south of France. So in order to make money, they would charter little sailboats. And I'm, I'm talking about Little sailboats, some, some Fife-designed boats that were 
26 feet, 32 feet, nothing big. There was always a sailing community there, a small one, but there was uh, more of a fishing community. It was more about fishing. When the fishing began to die out in the Mediterranean in that particular region, the fishermen, of course, they moved. They actually moved from there to Marseille. And when they didn't move from Marseille, they moved to Italy. So there's a fishing stocks move, fishermen move with the stocks. So that left these English gentlemen, quote-unquote, ex-soldiers, to take people out on boats. That's how they made their money. They didn't have any dough, right? So they say, yeah, I'll take you out on a charter. You know, I'll take you out for a day sail and this, that, and other thing. Well, eventually what happened, it became kind of a popular thing. And the British mentality about spit and polish and it's got to be done the right way and, you know, the whole British Navy and order and this is how it should go and this is the way the boat should look and it should be bristol and perfect and all the rest of this kind of stuff this is what happened these guys developed this industry they started to build bigger boats they had people come in that love the sailing and rich people they said hey yeah let's build a boat right one of the famous there's a couple of famous people that that lived in antibes which helped create this sort of atmosphere. The famous writer Graham Greene lived there for many, many years um, until the end of his life. He loved Antibes. And I lived in Antibes for, I was based there for close to 10 years. So I know the city, the town pretty well. But it's also known the Grimaldi Castle. And if you go on Offshore Explorer website, you'll see pictures of the castle in the town. It's where Picasso painted it's amazing. It's the Picasso Museum now, but many of his famous paintings were done right there in Antibes. So he used to walk all up around the town and go to the market. It hasn't changed, so you get to walk in the steps of Picasso. And today, there's tons of artists. You know, they're there painting the town and all the rest. In the meantime, you have this entire yachting culture, which the British guys had developed. Now, the interesting thing about this is the Brits pretty much had a stranglehold on all these jobs and they got bigger and bigger and bigger the yachts got bigger the services that they needed um, were actually provided by other british guys and the french were essentially cut out of the business today the yachting business since it started really after world war ii 1945 46 47 the yachting business is worth billions of dollars it's a huge business and it all started from this sleepy little town in the south on the coast of france thank you to our founding sponsors dg entertainment for providing the facilities for this podcast robbie davis and his staff for the best in the business we also want to thank greg vivaldi over at grimelli industries for their constant and loving support we're inviting local sponsors to support our podcast. You can find us at offshoreexplorer.org. So I like to tell the story about the people that are in the town and the services that are provided because every port and in our show Offshore Explorer and on this podcast, 
we'll be going from port to port, and I'll be telling people kind of what the port is about. Some ports are, there's a lot of merchant marine guys, you know, shipping, trade, business. You know, there's other ports that are ancient ports that are more like tourist traps or whatever the case may be. Then there's other sort of ports that are just, you know, weird and and wonderful and, you know, filled with food and unique people where life is sort of right down on top of the water and it's a port but it's not a port it's it's like life has just sort of stumbled into that part of the ocean and and Antibes is sort of like that where life has sort of stumbled down into the water and it's stumbled in a way of elegance and success and notoriety i mean richard burton and elizabeth taylor honeymoon secretly honeymooned in Antibes. just to give you an idea and and if you check your maps which i beg people to please study a map so you know where you are okay Antibes is very close to Cannes, where the Cannes film festival is okay that would be to the west and it's a tr- it's two train stops from Antibes to Cannes, and then going the other way east you go to nice and monte carlo okay so that's your that's your neighborhood right there so back a long time ago not that not really not that long ago it was uh i guess it was mid-august and i had a guy that i had met his he was an indian guy very interesting guy because you have to understand the British have sort of, they're big on segregation in this, you know, rich people over here, poor people, poor French people over there. It's changed a lot now. It's more integrated. There's more French captains. There's more French services. Different sorts of people have arrived. You know, I remember, you know, there was never any Russians, for example. But when they opened up Russia, there were like Russians walking around with suitcases saying, I want to buy your yacht. You know, <laughs> they would come to the back of the boat and they'd say, I want to buy your boat. And they said, well, it's not for sale, but I have money. And they couldn't quite understand why they couldn't have their way. Well, now they kind of, they're all integrated in. They all own their own yachts and there's a whole thing. And we're wait, we'll wait for the next wave of, of cash to come by yachts. And um, because yachts take a lot of money to run and a lot of money to buy, and um, it creates a great deal of industry. So this young man, his name was Kapoor. He was Indian. He actually had a nice story. He lived in Chennai in India, which is on the eastern coast of India, about kind of midway up if you're looking at India. As one of the larger cities in India. And he hopped on a freighter. His uncle, I guess, worked on the freighter and hid him in the freighter and, and fed him as they made this trip. And he made it all the way to Marseille, France, before he was kicked off. Now, we hear a lot about immigration today, and he definitely was in the country illegally. 
and France takes this stuff very, very seriously, it's just as the United States does. And But he, he actually got his citizenship in France and had to get a job and had to work. So one of the things that people do, especially in the summer, and this is how you get started. And so if there's any, any guys out there that are in their, say, mid to late 20s, they want to backpack or travel around the world, and they need money, one of the key things that you can do is get on the docks and walk up to the back of a boat to the passerelle, which is the platform that you, steps that you can get on the boat with, knock on it, and ask if there's any work for a day worker. Now, some people will notice that Day Worker Productions is the name of one of my companies, and it's named after these people that show up at the back of the boat and say, hey, can you do that? Because they often have a lot of talent. Um, they're just not applying it at that particular moment. And it makes for an interesting work. So they can be paid quite well. They come on, they, they wash the boat, they, they do some woodwork or whatever kind of skills they have. They do all the work that the crew kind of doesn't want to do or they don't have time to do or they're too tired to do. It's pretty much a common practice. So Kapoor actually turned into being quite a magical varnisher. Now, varnish is one of those skills or one of those acts that everybody can do, but very few people do it well. Kapoor was magical. Now, I have to frame this with a great deal of respect for him because I was, or I had, varnished every week for close to 20 years on my boats. I did the varnish. So I was very proud of that. But when I saw him do his varnish, I was like, okay, so I can't varnish. <laughs> <laughs> So varnishing is not like your craft store buying something from Ikea and, and varnishing it, right? Varnishing on a boat is very different. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, most people see the varnish on a boat are the cap rails. It's sort of, those are the rails that go around the boat. If it's a sailboat, you'll see them on the deck. They're usually big pieces of teak that are around it on yachts motor yachts they're the kind of the handrails so a lot of things to varnish on a on a boat and this is kind of one of the more important things and um it, it needs constant upkeep so what i'll do is i'll pause for a minute and i'll just give a little bit i'll give a little varnishing lesson which i actually learned from kapoor so one of the keys to varnishing, if you're going to start varnishing from scratch, a lot of guys will strip all the varnish off the wood. It, the wood is generally teak, okay, which is actually oily but very hard wood. So it takes some special maneuvering to get it into shape. So usually what, they, what I do is I'll take a heat gun and a scraper, one of those little L-shaped scrapers, and then heat it up till it starts bubbling and then scrape it off 
the varnish with the other hand. And once you get in a rhythm, you can pretty much, you, you, can, you can make way pretty well with that. As long as your blade is sharp, your hand is steady, because the last thing you want to do is kind of go sideways and have one of these gashes in it, which you're just going to have to sand out. So once you get the varnish off of it, the next thing to do is sand it, okay? And sanding, you go through the papers. You want to get all the way down to like 200, you know, sometimes 400, depending on the, the, the type of uh, teak that it is. But anyway, you want to get it down to about 220 and very, very smooth. Then the next thing you want to do, and this is a big trick that Kapoor told me, is you want to take OSFO, which is phosphoric acid. They, you could find it in any hardware store. OSFO is used to clean rust stains off of concrete. It's used to prepare paint surfaces. But what it does to teak, because if you look at teak, you see the grain. After it's had varnish on for a while, the grain itself is black, okay? And it's like no amount of sanding is going to get that black out of that, all right? You'll have a toothpick instead of a cap rail to get to that, that grain. But if you take OSFO and you dilute it to about 60% with water, because it's pretty powerful. And you wet the cap rail. After you've sanded it, you wet it, okay? And you get it really wet. Let it soak in. the it won't soak, but you'll know when it feels like it's soaked. And then you, then you can have a spray bottle, and you put it on there. And then what I use is I use a little 3M scrubby, okay, to just wash it, scrub it off, okay? And you'll see it'll turn black. All right, which is the oil. The osfo reacts with the oil. It'll turn black. You can take a whole deck, a teak deck, and use osfo and a brush, okay, and, and turn the whole thing. It'll turn it blonde. And that's the, that's the whole thing is you turn it blonde. You rinse it and it dries. You come back and sand it. So now your, your wood is prepared. So then the next step... And I'm going to pitch a product, Epithanes, the best varnish. Don't even argue with me about varnish until you've varnished in the Caribbean or you've varnished half your life. The only product for me is Epithanes. The rest of it, don't even talk to me about it. Okay? And it's used, it, Epithanes is a very expensive brand, but it has a high UV resistance to it. And it also has a couple of other components which actually make it easy to work with. And it makes it easy to maintain, and it'll last a lot longer than other varnishes. So the first thing that I do is I take some Epithanes hard gloss, and I dilute it 50% with thinner. And it's, it's very thin at that point. And then I put it on, I use, maybe I'll use a regular brush or I'll use a foam brush. And I'll put, I'll just stroke that puppy on there. You know, you try to keep it even. You don't want built, you know, parts being too thick or too thin. But let that get as the bottom, the bottom base. Then, after it dries, which usually takes about 12 hours, it'll dry less in hotter temperatures. 
65 degrees is the optimum temperature to varnish in. So it, when it dries, then you come back and you sand it. Use about 220 paper. So you sand it, and you're going to see that you're going to sand most of it off. Okay, there'll be some streaks, but those will be smaller streaks, and then you come back and you do it again. Okay. Let it sit. Then instead of using sandpaper, and this is a trick Kapoor taught me, use a 3M scratchy. You know the green 3M pads, like the little bristle brads? Use one of those, because all you want to do is scratch the surface. Varnish is a mechanical bond. It's not a chemical bond. So the varnish is actually trying to find grip when you put it on. So you just need lots of scratches, and that's your gripping surface. So guys, what they do is they'll put varnish on, and then they'll sand it, and they'll sand most of the varnish off. And they can't figure out how they can keep building coats. All right. The trick to making it happen fast is not to sand all the varnish you just put on off. So you use the scratchy pads to get it down. You scratch them up, wipe it off, and then revarnish. Now, epithanes also has what they call a buildup varnish, which is super high UV, but it's really soft. And on a hot day, you could put two or three coats, one after another, on the on a boat without sanding or using your scratchy pad in between. And then once you get like three or four coats, it'll start to look good of the buildup. It's called epithane's buildup. Then you scratch it up really nice, sand it up, get all the bumps out, any kind of little uh, lines, wiggles, drops, puckers, whatever you want to call them. Get all those out, touch them up, and then you come back and put on the epithane's hard gloss. An epithane's hard gloss, you have to dilute it 20% or 10%, okay? 20% for the first four coats and then 10% afterwards. But for the first four coats, you do 20%. Something you should remember, too. Don't use cheap thinner. Epithane's has a thinner that doesn't cloud epithane's. If you use another kind of thinner, paintbrush thinner, all right, like a cheap, like you had it in the garage for like six weeks or six years. Don't use that. You know, you get, get fresh thinner, okay? Because what happens is after it dries, that thinner that you put in there will make the whole thing look cloudy. Kapoor, interestingly enough, understood that, understood chemically how it worked. He could actually control how cloudy the varnish would get based on its app on the application he was trying to find. He used it a lot for floors. He used to mix it up special when when like for example uh, on a on a boat somebody dropped something and there was a um, a dent or a dig or a scratch in a in a floor. He could he could use that as f he would fill up the scratch with epithanes with the right thinner and he would match the cloudiness of the rest of the floor that had been there for ages that you can't do with just fresh varnish. So it's, there's a lot of like little tricks with that. So eventually you build it up to about 10, 12 coats, and then you're, then you're good to go from there for the varnish. So back to the story. I wanted to do that. That, 
the whole idea about the varnish, and I'm going to give more tips as we go along in the podcast, more nautical tips, more practical tips on how to run a boat, how to maintain a boat, what products I think are pretty good um, to use on the boat, and, and, and how to approach some problems that every boat has, you know, bubbles in your fiberglass, doing the bottom, fixing your rudders, or, you know, doing three through holes, or, you know, engine maintenance, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about these little things as we go along, because our show is really a lot about boating. There's this little restaurant in Antibes, and it's off of the main, one of the main squares, and it's a little cobblestone alleyway, really. I mean, the sun basically passes over it for a few minutes, and then it goes back into the shade. And this restaurant is run by this young Persian man. His name is Michael. I suspect his real name is Muhammad, but he always called himself Michael, too, as he says, to fit in. And he has got an interesting story. Kapoor is the one that introduced me to the restaurant. So at the time, I was running a Heeson 40 meter. Okay, so that's a 135-foot motor yacht built by Heeson, which is really fast. It's like a 25 to 30 knot vessel that is gorgeous okay and Franz Heeson who owned Heeson Yachts and his family were down and and they you know the boat was up for sale the boat had actually been a trade-in from some Indonesian guy that bought a bigger boat so now he came back to the the shipyard which they often do and I maybe that's a subject we can do a little bit later on on how how these rich guys end up getting bigger boats and not really paying any more for them. It's, there's a whole world of finance involved in that. So I was down in Sardinia, and Kapoor, who I had met before, he had worked for me a couple of times varnishing other boats that I was on, came up to the boat and said, Hey, what are you doing? How are you doing? Where are you going? I said, well, I'm going back to Antibes because Franz, you know, he, he had a private plane. So he just went on the private plane. He wasn't going to go back to Antibes from us, from Sardinia. And if you've never been to Sardinia or Corsica, Sardinia is Italian and Corsica is French. They're two, like, totally separate worlds from France and Italy. Sardinia is completely separate. Very fascinating place, full of history. And, and hopefully we'll get to talk more about Sardinia and, and Corsica. So he needed a ride because his flight and the ferry that he wanted to get on, he missed the ferry, and the flight that he was going to take to get back to Antibes because he had work, he couldn't do. So I told him, I said, get on the boat. And I said, we'll go back. I'll take you back up to Antibes because I was going there. So on our way back which is about a 15-hour journey for us, you know, flat-out speed. He told me about this restaurant, and Michael, who is this Persian guy, who makes lamb chops and saffron rice to die for. 
And one of the things about sailing, and I'm sure every sailor out there knows this, is that eating is your second favorite thing to do besides sailing. And I say second because sex is third. Eating becomes just the imperative. And looking for good places to eat when you come into a port is just... And to know where the right place is, man, that's like the topic of conversation, you know. You could sit around and talk about all your screws and filters and nuts and bolts and engine parts and sail parts and all the rest of that part. Professional captains talk about what restaurant are we going to go to after we get in port. <laughs> where are we going to get a drink is the other one. So we went to this, and, and Kapoor and I were sitting there. And Michael came out, and then Kapoor's girlfriend came. Now, Kapoor is Indian, and he's very dark-skinned, okay? And his girlfriend was Swedish and was about as white a girl I've ever seen in my life. Blue eyes, blonde hair, but, I mean, not yellow blonde, but, like, white blonde hair, okay? And the contrast between their colors of these two people and their attitudes and the way they saw the world and where they came from and all the rest, it couldn't be any greater. But they were like madly in love with each other. I mean, if I wasn't sitting there, they probably would have had sex on the table. They were like in lust mode. Like uh, you couldn't stop them. The only thing that was going to stop them was food. So the waitress came out as a French girl and she had such an attitude, very French, like, why are you interrupting me? And we were. It was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And she brought out some bread and, and olives and some butter and and uh, some anchovy paste. And, you know, she brought out a beautiful uh, ceramic pitcher of uh, cold uh, red wine. And I say cold because it was probably 90 degrees and red wine, you know, it was like 70-some degrees, which is kind of where you'd like to serve it. So we were, you know, we're having this conversation. And so Kapoor's girlfriend, Ingrid, looks at me straight in the eye and very deliberately and very, you know, pushy. She says, do you have a job for me? And I'm like, uh, what? Who? Uh, uh. And then Kapoor, I look at Kapoor and he's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I was going to ask you if you had work for her because she's a stewardess and she works on the boats and cleans the boats and stuff like that. And I mean, I didn't like this girl to start with, like right off the bat. I've always been the guy that I would hire kindness over skill i've hired people that were highly skilled at sailing and being on boats and stuff that were totally unkind people and i hated them and i didn't want to live with them because when you're on a boat that's what you do you live with that person 24 7 and as a captain you're sort of you know you're isolated from everybody else to a great degree but you don't want to have that sort of anger underneath Every time you look at somebody, you know, you, it's just not good. It's not healthy. So I always, I always err on the concept of kindness. 
because I would rather have somebody who didn't quite have all the skills to run a boat but was super kind than somebody who was super skillful but a terrible person to be around. Because being around people 24-7, you've got to have some social skills. As we always joke, the captain is the one with the least number of social skills, or at least developed social skills. So Ingrid pressed me on this, and thank God Michael came out. Michael just said, you know, what he, the chef came out, what would you like? You know, it's a small restaurant. There are five, five tables. We were sitting on the sixth table. They were kind of pushed up against the, the side of the restaurant. You know, it's very French, very kind of curious French. The inside was very dark. They didn't have the lights on in there. And so everybody sat outside. And so we basically got what Kapoor was recommending, the lamb chops, grilled lamb chops, and the saffron rice. So my entire time, I'm like looking at Ingrid, and she's draping all over Kapoor, and she's giving me these kind of dirty looks because I didn't answer her with her. I, I was going to hire her. I had to think about it. I mean, usually I'm pretty impulsive, but I had to think about this one. And the French waitress that brought all this stuff up, she had an attitude because we actually interrupted her lunchtime. So I'm sitting there with Kapoor being, you know, hanging all over this girl. His mind is someplace else. He should have prepped me for this conversation. The girl, the French waitress is pissed off at the world and pissed off at us. Ingrid is just manipulating the whole thing. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way I'm ever going to hire this girl. No way. Then comes the meal. And I go back to describing Michael so that you'll understand the complexity of what we were about to eat between the lamb chops and saffron rice. It's Persian saffron rice. It's a little bit different. Michael was a political asylum seeker in France. He had escaped Iran during some crazy period over there and came here and wanted to integrate into French society. Now, it's very interesting, I think, that you had your chef. He was there as a political person, and you had your Indian varnisher. He was there because he stowed away on a freighter and entered the country illegally, but now was legal and had a thriving business as a varnisher. And then you had a Swedish girl who was madly in love with the Indian guy. And she was wanting a job. Like she can get a job. It was, it's like this weird sort of everybody had their own, how would you, everybody had their own thing going on. And I was just sitting there kind of like, I just really want to eat. And finally, Michael comes up and he tells us a little bit about himself. So Michael's brother was the head of intelligence 
for the Iranian military. He was a badass dude. Okay? And he and his brother had a fallen out. And he had to leave. His brother had to leave. He changed his name and is living very quietly in this restaurant. Okay? But, but he missed his family. He missed everything that he came from. And he was trying to start a new life. And he cooked like he missed it all. When you ate, when I ate the first forkful of that saffron rice, it was literally like eating clouds of saffron flavor. You could, you could taste the rice, but it didn't, it, you could taste the rice, but it didn't seem to have any body to it. It didn't seem to have any thickness to it. It was so light and fluffy. It was just air. And then the saffron in it was just, you know, it was, it, it just floated in your mouth. It was like if you were walking along, you opened up your mouth and a cloud of flavor popped in your mouth. And you went, oh, that's saffron rice. Oh, okay. So I looked at Michael and I said, dude, how'd you cook this? I want to cook this. I want to know how to do it. He says, well, I could give you the recipe. He said, but come back to the kitchen. Come back. Come back. Because he could see that I was feeling awkward with Kapoor and, and Ingrid. So we went back in the kitchen and he had this uh, our big copper <clears throat> pot. And he cooked the rice in there. And he had a big lid on it. It cooks all day, this rice. And at the bottom of the pot is this burnt rice, okay, which he actually charges extra for. It's almost like eating candy. It's just burnt rice, but it's like eating candy. I, I can't describe it. It's, it's the kind of flavor that hits you that it'll blow your mind, okay? So he and I stood back there. We had a glass of wine together, and I ate my lamb chops before that. We did, you know, we had a nice time. And we, I went back to the table, and Kapoor looked at me, and he says, look, he was very apologetic. He says, look, I'm sorry. He said, I was supposed to talk to you about you maybe finding jo a job for Ingrid on your boat because she was on another boat, and she's very embarrassed and very upset because she thinks all you captains are the same. And I, I said, what do you mean all us captains are the same? Well, it turns out that she was on a boat with an infamous character, name Action Jackson. Action Jackson used to hire stewardesses for his own pleasure. He was a misogynist of the highest order and that's all he wanted to do and he worked for an owner who was the same way. So I could see Ingrid was a little bit jaded and upset about meeting a captain because she sort of assumed we were all the same kind of person. And Kapoor had to explain to her that I wasn't. I was one of the good guys, which I thanked him very much for. So eventually we got to talk about it. We moved on. I started to kind of like Ingrid at that point, and I finally said to her, after I've had all this loving rice, you know, this saffron, beautiful saffron rice, and Kapoor was very, was very happy that he turned me on to this. And then eventually 
I, I started to like her and I said to her, I said, look, why don't you come by the boat tomorrow and you could do some day work on the boat? And she agreed. It made her very happy. It kind of made me happy. It made Kapoor really happy. And then I said, why don't you two just take off? So they took off. Michael came out and said, hey, you know, the waitress, she'll be back in 10 minutes. Stay here. Here's another pitcher of wine. I need to go prepare for the night rush. So he disappeared, and I'm sitting there by myself in this little restaurant. It's like 4.30. There's nobody on the street. And then the French girl, the waitress, comes walking around the corner, and I look over at her, and I finally actually get to see her. And there's a big smile on her face when she sees me, and I'm thinking, oh, this is for me. This, you know, that smile's for me, right? And it was like the rice was a kind of aphrodisiac. And she she actually thought it was also, was like an aphrodisiac. And she hated to see people eat the rice because she didn't eat any. She hated to see people eat the rice and then she would, you know, they'd all be lovey-dovey, stuff like that. It made her very upset. Like it was some kind of illegal thing. And uh, so she came, she sat down at the table and just start, we started to talk. And Giselle, which is what her name was, Giselle and I actually ended up knowing each other for probably 20, 25 years as, as friends. And today we still talk about the Varnisher, the Swede, the Persian political refugee, and this beautiful thing called saffron rice. What is the recipe for saffron rice? Well, it's a it's a Persian recipe. It's three cups of basmati rice, uh, two tablespoons of butter, about three and a half cups of water, two or three tablespoons of liquid saffron. Uh, if you use dry saffron, it would be I th- it's about a quarter of a cup of dry saffron, a couple of teaspoons of salt, and the final ingredient is lots of love and let that sucker just cook and cook until the bottom is burned i've had the burnt rice before at the bottom i think it's a a middle eastern thing my my uncle Mm -hmm. is from armenia and so he always does the the burnt rice at the bottom and it's it's really delicious i don't yeah it's like this that was the first time i had ever come across that yeah it's the burnt rice and and then he charged me extra for the burnt rice and i'm like it's burnt (laughs) exactly thank you for tuning in if you like this podcast be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts also be sure to leave us a review you can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams until next time fair winds and calm seas there we go they say that time is like a never ending battle They say that if you're standing still, that time loses that.